The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about security breaches and hiring privacy console and just dealing with the whole issue of how to know about the, the skills that you need in your organization to protect privacy and to protect your own firm or your own organization. And today we're, we're thrilled to have a, a wonderful privacy counsel with us. She's coming from the Ashcroft Law Firm, and she happens to be in beautiful Boston, well, Boston area in Massachusetts. Let me tell you a little bit about Ellen Marie Givlin. Uh, She is well-recognized for her many years of legal and risk management expertise in privacy, data breach, data protection, cybersecurity, and information management. And as privacy counsel for the Ashcroft Law Firm, Ellen assists clients by advising them on how to prevent and respond to breaches of their systems through the entire protected information life cycle and this is this is whether you are a small firm or a law a large law firm or a large business or organization or even a governmental agency you have to worry about the protection of the information the sensitive information you have and the whole life cycle and the prior to joining the ashcroft law firm Ellen was privacy counsel at Littler Mendelssohn PC, which is a very large international labor and employment law firm. So she knows about employment law and employment privacy as well. And she's done so much more, but I want to get to talk to her. I just wanted you to know that um, she is very active at the Suffolk Law School as an alumni, mentoring two law students and judging the ABA contracts negotiation competition and I know that law school is a wonderful law school in Boston and she also serves on the Canadian Advisory Board of the International Association of Privacy Professionals and you can learn more about her at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where we have her whole bio her picture and a URL where you can jump over to the Ashcroft lawfirm.com and learn more about what she and her firm is actually doing so Welcome, Ellen. We're so glad to have you join us from the East Coast. Hi, Mari. Thank you so much for having me. Well, tell us a little bit about all the exciting work that you do in privacy. So every day is uh, pretty action-packed here in Boston with uh, privacy and data protection. 
We have a lot of clients that have large compliance reviews that we conduct for them. And as part of these compliance reviews, we usually come up with uh, open gaps that we will fill with policies and procedures, and we'll help them out by helping them to look at the risks that they have in their products and services and help them to conduct some audits, whether it's under Gramm-Leach-Bliley for financial services companies or whether it's under HIPAA for healthcare organizations. Okay. So tell us about the difference between privacy and data protection. Okay. Sure. So privacy is really when you're looking at whether a person has or wants protection for their identity, for their uh, rep- for their reputation, and actually for their right to be left alone. And that's in the U.S. And in the EU, um, the right to privacy there is really centered around the concept of that uh, your information about yourself, not really your financial information as much as the information about yourself and your uh, person is is not compromised or um, I'd have to say it's that it's accurate, that it's accurate and that it's treated uh, with, res- you know, we would call this generally respect, but actually they have principles that they really want to protect uh, for Europeans and uh, around the world, uh, actually, where they're looking for collection of information about you to be limited for how the information about you is used and, you know, how the quality is respected. And they actually want to uh, participate in, you know, the information that's gathered about themselves. And uh, I would say this all centers around consent. So in the United States, we, we treat things a little differently. Our whole um, privacy and data protection what we're looking at is the prevention of uh, crimes and especially uh, identity theft and financial fraud and uh, pretty much those types of, of issues that really end up costing a lot for banks and um, for hospitals. Because one of the issues that's really hot right now that's really being affected by um, compromises of information in the healthcare industry is medical identity theft and fraud. Yes, yes. And I think in one of the other things that uh, the difference between the United States and the European Union and some of the other countries in the world is that we basically, it's not looked at like we own our, our information. We can opt out of having our information shared or collected, but um, in the European Union, it's more like prior consent. Is that correct? Yes, it is. There's uh, that element of consent and that you can show that it was affirmative, and you really have to, you know, in your policies and procedures, lay out the mechanisms for for gathering consent. So, uh, you know, on, on our side here, uh, you know, we, we're, we're really looking at putting controls around information and protecting it from outsiders, such as, uh, you know, someone trying to take your information from an organization that you have shared it with, where I think in in Europe they're looking for their entire identity to be protected and that, you know, information regarding which social clubs that they belong to or uh, what they call sensitive personal information around what trade organizations they're in 
is not collected without their consent. Right. And we have some uh, of the information privacy, like I was thinking before when you were talking about protecting from identity theft and outside users. We, we also have like the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which we do have a right to, to um, know what's being collected and have a right to see it and review it and dispute it and correct it. So there, there are some things, but it, the, the, you know, that we can do that. I would think that there is that information privacy, even in the United States, where we want to be able to see what companies are collecting about us. And um, if it's erroneous or, or if what the government's collecting about, if it's erroneous, we want to be able to correct it, right? Yes, that's one of the main privacy principles that you will see uh, in a lot of the uh, privacy policies that are placed on companies' websites externally and also internally. Um, they'll have privacy policies that guard their employees as well. But also, you know, as you know, under Gramm-Leach-Bliley and under HIPAA, there's privacy notices that must be given. So the, the concept of accuracy is, is very highly uh, in the United States. Exactly, well. exactly. When you're talking about privacy policies, um, you know, in the in California, um, as you know, if you are collecting information about people who come to your website, you have to have a privacy policy, and um, and that's required in our state. So, what about privacy policies? Some of them are so convoluted. How do you help companies? so that they make a privacy policy that it's something that is understandable, user-friendly, and is enforceable and won't destroy the company? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think that's a great question, and I really appreciate you asking that question, because I think that, you know, this may sound like a stretch, but I think you can really link your privacy policy with also prevent... That's an, it's another step in the prevention of data breaches, because... Really what you, you want to do in a, in a privacy policy is to, you know, have it up to date, have a notice such as the California required, you know, um, statement and show the, you know, external audience that you're very serious about privacy. So to be very serious about privacy and that the consumer understands how you're going to collect the information, how you're going to use it, how you're going to transfer it, how you're going to share it, and how eventually you're going to, you know, at the end of the life cycle, dispose of it. You you need to be very clear. And so there are a lot of different ways that I have written privacy policies for companies. And, you know, I just, I really like to, you know, have it be like an interview where the consumer is, you know, you're anticipating their questions and you're giving them the answers. You know, how, how would I like to know this information and, how, and in what uh, order would I like to know it? That's pretty much how I build the privacy policies. There are a lot of other uses um, of techniques like blocking out, um, you know, in, in diagrams or, you know, creating, um, you know, some pictures that are really, um, you know, help people to that they can understand the policy regardless of the level of education because, you know, you should be really making the privacy policy to be able to understand by anyone who is 13 and up. So it really has to be very clear, very concise, 
and, you know, really map to what you do in your organization and your operations with the personal information that you collect from consumers. Yeah, and Ellen, I, I think sometimes people will, you know, because I've, I've helped people with privacy policies too, some of the smaller companies may say, oh, let's just copy this privacy policy, and then they put it up, and then they don't follow it. What are the dangers when you have a privacy policy, and you have promises, and you don't really fulfill those promises? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great question, again, because as I said, it does map to a a breach because I think it's really critical in your post-breach phase, and that would be a breach of personal information. If that, you know, say you had a cyber attack, you would want to go and look at your privacy policy, look at your terms of use, and you want to check and make sure, like, when was the last time it was updated? Because it really is a signal to people who troll through the um, websites and they look at the policies. It's really a signal if you have a very outdated privacy policy or one that just they can tell does not map at all to what you do, that it's probably an indicative that they have low security and that it's, you know, will be very easy to penetrate your site. Yes. So, or socially engineer with your employees. Because if you have a really sharp, up to date, uh, you know, crisp privacy policy, that's, it's highly unlikely that you're going to receive as much social engineering on that. And let's talk a little bit about social engineering. You have to pretty much um, help my audience understand when we talk about social engineering, we're talking about someone being able to kind of pretext, kind of get your employees to give over information by, you know, by them pretending to be someone who has a right to have it or by, um, you know, using their skills as, as, a, as a good uh, social engineer to get out information out of you that they shouldn't. So doesn't that also go to the issue of training your employees as well? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you know, I actually, this is a coincidence, but I spoke with a gentleman today, and uh, he was, representing a company that does forensics. And one of the statistics that he put in his PowerPoint that's on my desk, it says that phishing succeeds 52% of the time when three emails are sent. Mm-hmm. So I had never seen that statistic before, but it's, uh, it's, in the, it's backed up by the TrustWave 2013 Global Security Report. So, you know, what's very interesting is, you know, just think of that, how many times you get a phishing email, you recognize it, you report it, and somebody who's really not trained well on identifying them, maybe the first time, the second time, but they say, well, the third time, maybe this is somebody who knows me, and they open it, and then that's a, you know, a gateway into a compromise of your systems. Interesting. Yeah, you know, I had uh, Kevin Mitnick on my show. Kevin Mitnick was the FBI hacker who ended up writing, he's now a security expert, and he has written The Art of Intrusion and The Art of Deception, and he is a masterful social engineer. And uh, he told, you know, he told my audience how he would actually be able to get things out of people by either calling them or writing them or doing certain things or ending up actually at the door of companies and, and actually getting in there physically. So, you know, you have to be savvy enough to just just ignore these things. Or if you think that you've gotten an email 
that is from the FDIC or it's from your bank and you really think, oh my gosh, they're asking for all this information, don't ever give it. Just call up the, the phone number that you know to be the true phone number. I mean, I've literally had to call the IRS one time um, and when I got a, a, a letter in the mail and a phone call. And it, and it really was the, <laughs> the IRS for a, a mistake that was made in something. But the truth of the matter is, I don't trust any of that. Do you, Ellen? Well, you know, I think that the real bottom line there is just, you know, any good risk management program that a company would have is based on, you know, just test it. Test your program and test your people to make sure that your policies and procedures are working and your training is working. And the only way, you know, that you can do that sometimes is to hire an outside firm that will, you know, try to socially engineer their way in and, you know, see if they can gate surf their way in or, you know, borrow a badge. And it's really enlightening for uh, CFOs and CEOs to get that report back and see just how many times and how easy it was to gain physical access to facilities. Yes. And once you're in, then, you know, you can grab a badge from somebody or convince somebody, you know, that you can you know, have access to a, a terminal or site. You know, you just need a place to hook your computer in and you're on the system. So it's really important to test it. Always test it. Absolutely. So, you know, you were talking about having outside people. Um, what about the different, what, what do you think? Is it better to have an internal privacy officer or an outside privacy officer? And and what about the, the smaller firms that really can't afford to have in-house privacy counsel? Well, I've done an interesting uh, few engagements where I have been what we call a virtual privacy officer. And in that case, what you're doing is you're actually going in and you're filling the gap. Say you get audited and all of a sudden they're bringing up a lot, you know, a lot of issues that require privacy officers, you know, decision-making capability and also, you know, an understanding of what work needs to be done. So that's something that I, I do for engagements is that I will, I will act as a, a virtual privacy officer. It's pretty cost-effective because sometimes the, the amount of work that needs to be done is like a mountain all at once, and you have some independence as well. So you can get through that first big bubble of, of work with a lot of buy-in from the C-suite, uh, the executive level, and, you know, then somebody can come in and they can, you know, build the privacy office the way they would like it to be with, you know, hiring some people who are, um, you know, at the privacy specialist level to carry on, you know, what's been built up, up front. So I think it is a, in a cost-effective way to address a vacancy or, you know, a lack of, uh, you know, having a privacy officer in, in the building when you need them. So I, it usually falls on the general counsel to, uh, you know, hire that person or the chief compliance officer. So that, that is a strategy that, uh, that is used. And I would think that it's really, you know, I know a lot of general counsel that really don't know privacy. Um, they they are much more worried about you know patents and 
and uh, some of the intellectual property and, and employment problems than than really some of these information privacy issues. It's it's rather a, a newer field, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, actually, I just uh, I just worked on a project that was a data mapping exercise where we had an organization that was very large and it had grown by acquisition and they had no idea really, you know, uh, on in one central location where all the information was. And if you don't know where all your information, your personal information that you're collecting is, it's pretty difficult to write policies that reflect how you're going to treat it. And also, you know, conducting a data mapping exercise allows you to really do what I call an accelerated uh, cyber or data breach response. With, you know, if somebody gets into a certain system or server or, you know, um, even an, an area of the company physically, if you know what's there and you know that there's nothing there, then, you know, you can de-escalate your, your response accordingly. But if you do know what's there, right away, then you can escalate your response and, you know, push all your resources to that to that issue right away. So mapping the data in your organization, I think, is one of the key elements of a true, uh, robust, and mature uh, privacy program. And, you know, when you're talking about data mapping, um, most companies that I know of, at least, um, don't really know where everything is. <laughs> I think that's something right. that is, you know, if it's a new company, they can start and get organized from the beginning. But this, the whole information management issue becomes a nightmare. And I think one of the things is coming from you coming from Littler and, and doing employment law. Um, what about, you know, allowing employees to, to have access to information with with thumb drives and all sorts of data. I mean, the the research that I've seen is that quite a few of these data breaches are really dirty insiders. And I, I know of dirty insiders myself that have uh, invaded systems and have taken advantage of companies large and small. So what, you know, coming from, you come from that whole area of uh, employment law, what are some of the suggestions that you would have for employers about restrictions with regard to data? Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, first of all, I, that was, I just want to hit every element of your question. I didn't mean I it think, to be so confusing. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so here's what I guess what I'm suggesting would be a worthwhile investment for um, maybe a general counsel or, you know, a chief privacy officer or people who are interested in privacy, you know, to look at. And one is the data mapping exercise is really important because it's really not as expensive as you think it, it could be. There are some vendors out there that, you know, really have great, uh, you know, systems and, and ways to get this done quickly. So You're talking about software, is- right? Software that they can do in-house? Uh, yeah, actually, you know, they can engage the, the business lines to fill out some surveys, and the surveys are then centralized, and reporting comes from it. You can create the data map from those, and that's that's a really good method as well. So it doesn't really have to be too expensive. And, you know, it also engages employees to know what data is in their area, and it's, they're really the subject matter experts 
of what is in their area, what records they have, as as opposed to outsiders, you know, coming in. So with a little help from some outsiders, you can get your inside people, you know, your trusted colleagues to tell you where the, the data is. And then you can classify it. And you can find where is your sensitive data, you know, data there where access should be limited. Where is your, you know, restricted data, where it's not the highest held information, so it requires some controls, but not all of the most expensive controls like encryption. And then you have your um, your lowest level, which is in some data classification schemes call it uh, public data, or I would call it unrestricted data, where anyone can take a look at it, but you still wouldn't want the integrity of that data compromised, like um, outward-facing calendars or marketing material. You really want to make sure your marketing material is even though it does go out to the public, but that it's protected when it's out in the public. So, you know, there you can classify the data, and then you can go and start looking towards tweaking all of your job descriptions and matching them up with their roles and responsibilities, and then you can start with IT working towards who should have access to what data. So when you do that, you really can have the opportunity to tighten up and uh, cut back on the access for people who shouldn't have too much access. And a good example of that are project managers who work on many projects across an enterprise and uh, gather access to a lot of different systems and then leave and, uh, you know, anything can happen there. So at that point, we're looking at insider threat, as, as you right, brought up. Right, So insider threat can be an employee or it can be a contractor or a vendor that's on your premises. Right. So... What you really need to do is, you mentioned FACRA earlier, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you really do need to conduct background checks. Right. Background checks that are meaningful and, you know, appropriate to the level of access that the person who is, you know, working and conducting work on behalf of your company, you know, what they need, not more than that. And, you know, that somebody's monitoring it as well. So there, there is a lot of... Um, you know, problem when someone leaves the company. Um, I've seen sometimes somebody will call a meeting and ask for an update on, you know, everything. And, you know, you want to protect your intellectual property as well. Yes. So as, as well as your personal information. And so, um, you know, they'll call a meeting and they'll ask for, you know, a complete um, update on, you know, what the market plan is going forward for the next year. And then they leave. So, you know, what you really need to do is have, you know, a process in place with, with HR to make sure that, you know, you're, you're conducting um, meaningful background checks on the way in and on the way out you're making sure everybody's, you know, signed a non-disclosure agreement. And even in cases like something, an anomaly like that happens where somebody has excess, inf- you know, access to information right before they leave, maybe an affidavit, you know, confirming that they will not share that information and have not shared it. So, um, so there is a, you know, this is a fascinating area and there are a lot of ways to, to work with people so that, um, you know, business can, can move and flow and information can move and flow as well and there can be a lot of cooperation and goodwill. Uh, it doesn't all have to be very punitive. So, um, you know, I try to act more as an ombudsperson as opposed to a sheriff. Right, right. So we have about two minutes left. Do you want to share some ideas for the business people that are driving by? Some of them might be larger companies and some smaller. What What's some advice you can give 
so that they can um, address their own state of breach response? Mm-hmm. So my bottom line uh, advice is you need to have a team in place that responds to breaches. And I think that what you really need to do is to for an accelerated type of breach response, that you need a team that includes representatives from the organization's security, privacy, human resources, senior management, and legal teams. And uh, including your, your vendors outside is necessary. And really what you want to do is to have somebody who's in a central location that can take in, um, you know, forms and reports from people in the field that when they see uh, a defined breach. And so there's the training right there where it comes in. You have to really train your workforce to workforce to really understand what an incident is and, you know, what's an event and that they should report everything and let the central person in the privacy office or the general counsel's office decide, you know, what is a breach and how you're going to react to it. Well, terrific. We thank you so much. We're going to send people to ashcroftlawfirm.com where they can learn more. And we thank you so much for joining us, and we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Mari. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you take care, Ellen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can visit our uh, see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, and listen to archived interviews, and write us emails about your concerns about privacy in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.